spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you. LeadSA.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. The last time we spoke, you were snowed in. Is it getting any better? No, it's still snowy. <laughs> it's cold, frosty, there's ice everywhere. And worse still, I now have no cables connecting, or no one in my village has any cables connecting us to the World Wide Web or to the telephone line or ISDN line. Oh. Because someone has stolen them all. <laughs> no! <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Second time in a month. So three weeks ago, I was on the phone to the British Telecom bunch saying, I've got no connections. And uh, last night, I was in the middle of doing a a little broadcast that I do for Australia. And all of a sudden, my connection to Australia just stopped. And I I thought, what's going on? And um, everyone in my village, there's about three or four hundred people here, uh, has got no telephone connections. And it turns out that someone has stolen the cables again to this because we live in a village in the middle of nowhere and the cables that connect us to the exchange have, have been nicked for the second time in a month oh no that is just infuriating i hope Chris, <laughs> for selfish re- i'm glad you still have your sense of humor but for selfish reasons i hope that it holds out until 10 o'clock because i don't want to lose you oh i hope no one steals me but then they probably wouldn't want to steal me so i'm probably okay there. you'd be surprised you'd be surprised <laughs> okay tell us about these new insights into the early universe and its evolution Yes, well, there's quite a nice paper which has been published in the journal Nature this week, and it's by two researchers in America who are Judd Bowman and Alan Rogers, and they are trying to understand the structure of the very early universe, because if you wind the clock back to the time when the universe first began to exist, which is the Big Bang, about 13.7 billion years ago, when that first happened, lots of hydrogen was produced. The vast majority of the products of the Big Bang were hydrogen, the gas. But because the early universe was tiny and very hot, the gas couldn't exist as a gas. It was ripped apart into its constituent particles or ionized. Mm -hmm. And this sea of ions floating around meant that no signals could go through because ions will soak up radio waves. And so there was this very opaque, impenetrable early universe. But after about half a a, um, billion years or so, the universe had expanded enough that it had cooled down. And that cooling meant that these particles could reform hydrogen gas. And so the universe became transparent again for a while. Because the next thing that happened is that the gas began to coalesce into galaxies. And in those galaxies were stars. 
and those stars, some of them would have been massive and they would have produced enormous amounts of ultraviolet radiation and that would have reionized the hydrogen gas and made the universe become cloudy again for a while. Mm-hmm. And if we can understand the pattern of that cloudiness, when did it start happening and what was its distribution, then we have a chance to understand what the structure of the early universe and those first galaxies looked like. But obviously you're talking about something that happened 13 billion years ago and the only way to detect this is to look for the signature of hydrogen in early light coming from the first vestiges of the universe. So it's very, very difficult to do. But what these two researchers did was to build a special instrument, which they call EDGES, which is the experiment to detect global reionization experiment. That's their EDGES probe. And they put it in the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory in Western Australia. And they made long-term observations for a long period of time of just a patch of space. And they've shown that they can detect this hydrogen signal of a gas getting reionized from the early universe. And this is the first step towards being able to do this fairly big experiment, which would be to look at the whole sky and say, mm-hmm. right, what's the distribution of this reionization? And the, the key finding is that the universe didn't reionize all in one go. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a dramatic step um, where all of a sudden all of the gas suddenly got ionized. And this tells you quite a bit about uh, the, the fact that it took a long while for enough big stars to form mm-hmm. to start to break apart this hydrogen gas. So it's a first step towards understanding what actually happened early on. And now we're going to have to build bigger and better instruments in order to get to the bottom of it. But it's a very nice piece of work because the signal they're trying to detect is actually 10,000 times weaker than the noise signals that are coming from our own galaxy and even from TV and radio stations here on Earth. So they've done very well to pull out this very weak signal to understand the early universe. Right, we're with the naked scientist. Anything that you want to ask him, uh, he's got the answers and uh, we are stripping science down to its bare essentials. We're taking your calls. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. While you're dialing, Chris, let's talk about uh, Alzheimer's. And I know it affects one adult in five over the age of 80. Scientists are saying we, we're heading to a better understanding of the condition? Yes. Well, Alzheimer's disease and diseases like it constitute the most common cause of cognitive or, in other words, brain function decline with old age. And what we understand is happening in Alzheimer's disease, if you look inside the brain of someone affected by the disorder, is you see an accumulation in the brain of a protein, which is called beta amyloid or A-beta. And this accumulates to form these plaques or lumps of aggregates of this protein in various bits of the brain and it's believed to be directly toxic to nerve cells. So over time people accumulate this stuff and it then damages nerve cells, they lose nerve cells and therefore their brain function declines and they become forgetful and have other problems. But one of the big outstanding questions is well why does this stuff accumulate in the first place? Is it that the brains of people who have a tendency towards getting Alzheimer's disease produce too much beta amyloid in the first place? Or is it that the brain in people who are going to get Alzheimer's disease is not very good at removing the beta amyloid they produce and in either case it accumulates? Well, that's a big question. And it's in fact been solved this week by a neurologist called Randy Bateman who's at Washington University uh, in St. Louis. And what he and his team have done is over the last few years to develop a very clever technique to enable them to measure how much of this beta amyloid protein the brain is making and how much of it's being removed. 
so you can answer this question. And they took a group of Alzheimer's patients, they used 12 people who had Alzheimer's, and they compared them with healthy control patients. They inject the patients with a very small dose of an amino acid called leucine, which is one of the building blocks used to make beta-amyloid in the normal healthy person. And this leucine is a little bit heavier than the normal form, so they can track it around the body. And they give a dose of this stuff, and then they measure the cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that goes around the brain, and they trace the rate at which the label appears in the cerebrospinal fluid in both the healthy people and the Alzheimer's patients, and then they compare how quickly that label goes away again. And this enables you to work out the rate at which the brain is producing the protein and the rate at which the brain is getting rid of the beta-amyloid protein. And what they found is that the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease are much less good Mm -hmm. at removing this beta-amyloid signal. So it looks like one of the reasons it accumulates is because of a, a failure of the brain to remove the stuff And this is important because it's an insight into why the disease happens. But also, if we start to produce treatments and drugs and molecules come along that can augment the ability of the brain to remove this stuff and therefore hopefully prevent Alzheimer's, a technique like this will be crucial in measuring the beneficial outcomes or the effect of that sort of drug in the future. Let's go straight to the lines then. Uh, Attila in Durbanville, what do you want to ask the naked scientist? Morning, Chris. I trust you well. Chris, um, is my observation correct? Because my friend differs from me. If you stand on the northern hemisphere and you look at the moon, and let's say the first phase of the moon is D-shaped, then the moon will start to wax. We'll go to a full moon, but it starts off with a D-shape. And I maintain if you're on the southern hemisphere, it's a C-shape, the first phase, going into the full moon. Is my observation correct? Or he says, no matter where you stand on Earth, the moon will always be viewed the same way. Okay. Um, Well, let's just sort of take a step back and imagine what's going on if you're an observer not on Earth for a second. So you have the moon, which is a ball, which is going around the Earth, which is a slightly bigger ball. And the reason we see phases of the moon is because as the Earth turns it turns inside the orbit of the moon. So the moon is going around the Earth, and it takes a month-ish for the moon to go right the way around the Earth. But the Earth is also turning inside the moon, which is why the moon goes across the sky every day. But that means that at a certain time of day and a certain point of the month, we're going to see a certain view of the moon's surface. And the moon is being illuminated by the sun. And so when we see... Uh, the the uh, moon shining in the sky, what we're seeing is a patch of the moon's surface with the sun shining on it. It's not a shadow from the Earth or anything like that. It's just a patch of the moon's surface from our perspective being illuminated. So if you were to sort of recreate this experiment, if you pretended you were the sun and you stood out in the, in the, in the garden with a torch or something and you shone it at a football, um, you'd see that the football had the surface illuminated Uh, from where you were standing. And if you got your friend to then walk around with that torch and shine it at the football from different angles, that would be the equivalent of you seeing the moon from different angles as the moon goes around the Earth. So, in theory, as the moon goes through its cycles, it doesn't really matter where you're standing on Earth. You're going to get a very similar view of the moon's surface from wherever you are. 
as far as I understand it. And if I've got that wrong, please someone phone in and tell me. Thank you. <laughs> Trust me, they will, Chris. <laughs> uh, all right, Zig, Debbie, Irene, please stay on the line. I'm coming to you just after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Well, Chris, you did invite anyone to call you to correct you if you've got it wrong. We've got Simon Gear, who's our uh, resident. Uh, uh, <laughs> he gives he, he gives he gives us our green tip, but he's our environmental correspondent. Simon, I forgot your title. It's too long. You need to change it. <laughs> I really, I thought I've got to take this opportunity because this is probably my very, very only opportunity ever to uh, to to correct Christmas, even if it's very, very slightly. Um, Chris, your, your explanation is absolutely correct. Uh, the only um, the only thing you missed, of course, is that the question was: is the per- perception of the moon different from the southern or the northern hemisphere? And in your example of someone standing. Um, in the garden, with, you know, showing a, a, a torch with a uh, with a, a soccer ball. Of course, the northern hemisphere, that's fine. But for, for the southern hemisphere perspective, you'd have to you'd have to stand on your head to get the the same look at the moon. And because the the phases of the, of the moon really are looking at light patterns on the surface of the moon, um, you you literally would see it. Uh, upside down from the perspective of the northern hemisphere if you're standing in the southern hemisphere. So I think the caller is probably correct that, uh, that in the southern hemisphere we'd see that, uh, that shadow on uh, the right-hand side of the moon and on the, in the northern hemisphere we'd see it at the same time on the left from the perspective of, a, of an observer standing on the Earth. Oh, thank you, Simon. That's very kind of you. Um, actually, what I was referring to is I thought he meant the shape of the light as in the, the light falling on the, the surface directly from the sun, the illuminated patch. Um, I didn't realize he was talking about the shadow patterns as well, but you're absolutely correct, and thank you for, for pointing that out. And you explained it much better than I, sh- I did. So next time, you can do the space questions. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I said you won't, won't take it up. I absolutely love, uh, love listening to you, mate, and uh, have a great Christmas. Thanks, Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to Zig in Randberg. You've been so patient. Welcome. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Reedy and Chris. Uh, I wanted to pursue a question about the polar reversals, the geomagnetic reversals where the North Pole becomes the South Pole and where this uh, uh, in, uh, causes massive radiation to be, uh, uh, to be uh, uh, directed on us. We are bombarded by all this radiation and I would have thought this would cause massive mutations and and now we know that uh, evolution uh, is also a gradual process uh, which takes place normally uh, uh, as time goes by but I understand that the fossil record shows that there were massive waves of evolution uh, bursts or spurts of evolution which took place in the past and I and this same uh, fossil record also uh, can show up when the magnetic reversals took place now I wanted to ask the naked scientist uh, did uh, these spurts in evolution take place simultaneously as a result of uh, the geomagnetic reversals Chris Um, I don't know precisely how they match up but you're correct to say that there are big spurts in evolution. And most famously, 300-odd million years ago, suddenly enormous numbers of animals began to appear, and then they were wiped out, and then there were big bursts of new radiations of different lineages of animals and organisms. 
So something throughout Earth's history has stimulated enormous proliferation of different types of species. And it's definitely true that climate plays a huge role in that. And the, and the Earth has gone through phases in the past when it's been very, very cold and icy and the vast majority of different species have been wiped out and then things have warmed up again and there's been a huge diversity introduced again. So definitely catastrophic changes to the Earth's climatic systems will make a big impact. There have been studies looking at fossils and the isotopes which are locked away in those fossils. You can use oxygen 18 to 16 ratios to work out what the temperature and rainfall on the Earth was and therefore work out what temperatures were and things like that. And people have, have done pattern recognitions of, of this showing how in the past the numbers of mammals have changed. I don't know how they match up in terms of the geomagnetism with those changes though. Um, an interesting question, I'd have to go and look that up to see if there's, there's any kind of relationship but there are definitely strong relationships between climate and things going extinct though. Debbie in Eagle Vale Debbie I'm Debbie in Eagle Vale Yes Debbie, you are Debbie in Eagle Vale, what's your question? My question is, is there any known cause of Asperger's syndrome? And my second question is, is there any medication one can give one's child? Asperger's syndrome. Okay, Chris, anything about that? Hello, Debbie. Um, Hi. The answer is that uh, in terms of the causes of Asperger's, people are currently looking very hard for the genes which appear to be linked to this condition and in the last few years they've started to do studies called genome-wide association studies very long term but what it means is that you take a very big group of people who haven't got a condition and a very big group of people who have got a condition and you compare a system of genetic markers between those two groups to see if any regions of the DNA keep cropping up as more commonly carried by the people with the condition than without and then you go hunting around in the regions of DNA that these markers flag up and a number of genes have been linked to Asperger's and autism spectrum disorders but at the moment there's nothing concrete apart from just a clutch just a handful of genes that seem to be linked to the condition so at the moment we don't know exactly what's causing this but one theory that scientists have and they've got a couple of genes that seem to support this theory is that Asperger's and autism appears to be some kind of neurodevelopmental disorder whereby the connectivity the way in which nerve cells connect to each other and between different bits of the brain is different in people who have Asperger's and autism compared with people who don't and so this altered connectivity, the way in which the bits of the brain talk to each other, appears to manifest as the symptoms that you see. Now, because it's a developmental disorder, there's no drug that can necessarily change that at this stage. But the reason scientists are interested in finding genes that are linked to the condition is because it may then be possible to work out what a person's risk of developing the condition is and then working out ways that you could intervene, not necessarily with drugs, but with mm -hmm. some kind of therapy very early on when a baby's brain is very plastic and can be more easily molded by therapy. And it might be that you can maximize the benefits or the outcomes for people who would otherwise be destined to get uh, autism or an Asperger's-like outcome. But then there's an ethical dilemma because I know many people who have Asperger's who will argue, well, actually, 
I quite like who I am, and I'm quite glad that I am who I am, and who mm-hmm. who is someone else to tell me that I should have been brought up or, or manipulated in a different way when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to tread very carefully to avoid going down that road and, and upsetting people as well. It's a very contentious area. Sounds like it. Joshua in Kharsfontein, hi. Hi. Mm. Uh, I want to ask uh, Chris something. Um, my, my partner and I, we are having a little bit problem because of this. Uh, she's telling me that, uh, that I'm not a human being because uh, I, uh, I'm always awake when she goes to bed. Mm-hmm. And I will be awake when she wakes up. <laughs> I sleep four hours every day. Yeah. And I have slept four hours all my life. I don't know if it is a problem or it's going to, you know, cause problem to me uh, when I'm getting in life. older. Okay, is it has four hours sleep healthy, Chris? <laughs> Hello, Joshua. I have sort of the same problem. I need <laughs> less sleep than my wife, and she often complains that uh, I'm going to bed too late and I'm always getting up in the morning and waking her up and all this kind of thing. So it looks like we've got that in common. Um, I think I'm human, so I reckon you are. <laughs> but it just seems that uh, it just seems that some people have a lower demand for sleep than others. Some people need a lot of sleep. A, a guy who I work with at the University of Cambridge here, um, he says he has to go to bed at 9 o'clock at night because if he doesn't, he feels awful and also begins to develop symptoms. He gets irregular heartbeats and things if he gets tired. Um, I, on the other hand, get really tired, but then I persist in going to bed late. And there are genes which are known to be linked to sleep requirements and the way in which your body clock works. And if you look inside the, the very heart of a human brain, you find this little clutch of nerve cells, and it's a region called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And there's about 20,000 nerve cells in there that are all interconnected, and they run a sort of genetic domino effect where one gene turns on, this turns on the next gene, and this turns on the next gene and turns off the first gene and so on. And this domino effect takes about 24 hours to go round. And as these genes turn on and turn off, they change the behavior of these nerve cells, enabling them to keep time like a cellular metronome. And this is passed into other bits of the nervous system to control how awake we are, when we feel tired, when we feel hungry. Mm. And that's how you have a body clock. And some people's genes that they use to run that body clock are slightly different. And that means that those clocks run at slightly different times and make people feel more awake at different times. And it's now beginning to emerge that there are some people, probably about 20% of the population, who are defined owls. They work Mm. much better at night. They feel more alert at night. There are about 20% of people who say they're larks. They like to get up very early they get very tired later. And I suspect that perhaps you have a combination of genes that gives you this wonderful ability to, to not feel tired. Um, yeah. Maybe we share some genes like that in common. Okay, Joshua, go to bed now. Chris, I'll chat to you next week. Thanks indeed. <laughs> Thanks really. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.